0: From the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET.
1: This is Detroit Today.
2: It's week number two of public impeachment hearings against President Trump on Capitol Hill. We'll look at these hearings through the lens of history with presidential historian Jeffrey Engel, who recently wrote a book on presidential impeachments, and we'll meet two women who just won mayoral elections in Metro Detroit, breaking gender and racial barriers that have existed for decades. That's all coming up on Detroit Today, right after the news. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Jake Neer, in for Steven Henderson today. Are you a student of politics? You can join me along with Stephen Henderson and the WDET team to watch the next Democratic debate. That's Wednesday on October or sorry, November 20th, upstairs at the Hoomer Room at Hopcat in on Woodward in Midtown Detroit. We'll get together again on Wednesday at 7 30. You can register to join us at WDET.org/slash events. And also, Aaron Glantz, a senior reporter for Reveal, which is heard Tuesdays here on WDET at 2 p.m. He has has a new book called *Home Wreckers*: How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund mag- Magnates, Crooked Banks, and Vulture Capitalists Suckered Millions Out of Their Homes and Demolished the American Dream. You can see him at the Detroit Public Library this Thursday again. That's November 21st at 6 p.m. You can find more information at wdet.org/events. It's very intimidating. Those were the words of former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, as she testified in front of the House Intelligence Committee as part of its public impeachment inquiry hearings last week. She was referring to tweets the president himself was posting as the testimony was unfolding on live TV. The tweets attacked Yovanovitch both personally and professionally. Some have said since that the tweets amount to witness tampering. So far, every witness in the impeachment inquiry has faced attacks from the president, the Republican Party, and its members in Congress. That's likely to continue throughout hearings this week. It all seems unbelievable to see the GOP openly and brazenly attack nonpartisan diplomats with impeccable careers and service to the country and our interests abroad. Here to help us put it into some historical context is someone who has studied impeachments throughout our history. Jeffrey Angle is director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, uh, and I assume that he's been taking notes furiously uh, recently for the next edition of his book, <laughs> Impeachment in American History. Jeffrey Angle, welcome back to Detroit today.
3: Hi, good to talk to you again.
2: I must say uh, that I think uh, writing a book about impeachment when you did in 2018 was about the best move a presidential historian probably could have made. So congrats on that. <laughs> thank
3: you. Thank you. You know, I, in truth, it was prompted by something which was a little bit disturbing in that uh, I contend that no matter which person won the election in 2016, we would have been talking about impeachment. Mm. Um, obviously, we saw how things played out with Donald Trump. But uh, remember that the Republicans who controlled the House in 2016 uh, had just come from a convention where the major cheer was "lock her up." So right. I think it would have been in the air either way.
2: So, so do you think that that is the circumstances of our of these specific candidates, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, or do you think this is now inherent in our political conversation as a country?
3: No, I actually do think that it's just that just these two candidates. I mean, this is uh, an extraordina- this was an extraordinary election in oh so many ways. You know, you have on the one hand a candidate with zero political experience, by his own admission. In fact, that's part of his calling card. Uh, who you know breaks norms again part of his calling card, uh, against a candidate who has so much experience that she's basically been in the public sphere, the public arena, and attacked in the public arena for going on 40 years now. So uh, I don't think that we would have seen any other candidate pair create that kind of Animosity—that kind of visceral anger—that that is ne- necessary for generating impeachment.
2: Mm, very interesting. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, you know, as you've written about this, if you, as you've studied impeachments throughout American history, I'm curious. What are what are some of the things that have stuck out most to you so far in these hearings that we've seen in the last couple of weeks? Uh, as again, as a historian who studied this.
3: Well, one thing is something you mentioned in the introduction, which is that we are really in not uncharted waters, but extraordinarily uncomfortable waters when it comes to how witnesses who are career civil servants uh, are being treated, and including you know, ones who are in the military. I mean, we've gotten to a place in our society where the military is usually praised without any critique whatsoever. So to see a, you know, a lieutenant colonel with a battle record uh Abused in the press, and his loyalty question is really unfathomable, um, and so. But we have to fathom it. Um, mm-hmm. So the example which I keep coming back to is actually uh, Joseph McCarthy. In one critical sense, now that's a very hyperbolic exa- comparison most times, but I wanted to say in this narrow sense, one of the things that McCarthy did that was effective in the media was to make outlandish claims. Because he didn't need evidence for those claims to essentially stick to the person, you know. Once you heard that a person was a communist, once you heard that a person was a, a sexual deviant, you know, you remembered that about the person, even though McCarthy had no no facts whatsoever. And I've seen the same thing occur for the witnesses that we've had in the last week of, of the impeachment trial. That each of them has been smeared in one way or another, up to and including by the president of the United States without evidence. But that, in a sense, doesn't matter, because now there's a segment of the population that is going to believe that the, some of our diplomats were disloyal, some of our diplomats are not trustworthy, et cetera, et cetera, um, just because it's been said, just because it's been thrown out in, in the ether. And, and I'm, a, I'm particularly disturbed by that
2: trend. So what was it about Joseph McCarthy and the uh, backlash to to that era That led to decades where we didn't see this kind of uh, sort of uh, baseless attacks as sort of the political norm. Because now it's it seems like it's being embraced uh, at least by uh, one of uh, one of the major parties here in the United States. That um, that you know once the talking points are there, it sticks. It's something that is repeated over and over again. Uh, Was there something uh, that that sort of um, uh, reverse course uh, when Joseph McCarthy was was doing his thing that is a little different from today?
3: Well there's a couple of big differences obviously the, the most obvious and glaring one is the media environment is different in that you know nowadays everybody can find their own media silo uh, and can listen only to evidence that they choose to listen to. <clears throat> you didn't have that option in the 1950s. There's only three major n- television networks. And while that was limiting in its own way, at the very least, that allowed sort of a consensus on what facts were and what truth were. Um, and we have to remember that McCarthy went on for over you know, uh, several years. Uh, and actually, one of his partners was Richard Nixon, ironically, given that we're going to be talking about impeachments. Uh, you know, I, I, I think ultimately at the end of the day, we have to remember that American politics, like all things, are a pendulum. And McCarthy you know, went too far, went over the edge, and the basic decency of basically everyone else in the Congress finally was able to muster the political courage to say, enough, you've gone too far. Now, the big difference, of course, is that the person who was pushing the envelope in the 1950s was a senator. The person who's pushing the envelope today is, of course, the president of the United States. So the pendulum, I think, is ultimately going to swing back towards norm- normality, if you will, but um, perhaps slower than before and perhaps less vigorously than before. And, and I, I just want to stress that this McCarthy example is is only, I'm only applying that in the sense of the way that the rhetoric has been, sure. been deployed.
2: Right. Understood. Uh, you're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm speaking with Jeffrey Engel. He's the director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. He's also the author of the book Impeachment in American History. Uh, I'm curious uh, if, if you know, have you been paying attention to these public impeachment hearings? We want to hear why or why not If you have, what are your big takeaways from the first week of hearings? And do you think Demo- Democrats are doing what they need to do to win public support for impeachment? And do you think Republicans are doing what they need to do to sort of make sure that this doesn't stick, that this turns into uh, essentially a political exercise? The number on the phones is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. Please get, we want to hear your thoughts about the impeachment process so far. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today. You can also go to our Facebook page and leave comments or questions there. Uh, so Jeffrey Engel, um, as you just said, we live in very different. We live in a very different world in a very, very different media landscape compared to even 1998. Uh, not to right. mention 1973 or the 1950s. Um, is history even useful in the case of these hearings when it comes to figuring out how people are going to react to hearings like this?
3: Well, let me say history is not useful. Except that it's the only thing we have that has a chance of being useful, <laughs> right you know I, in fact, I like to say you know that old saying that people have that those who do not study history are destined to repeat it is actually wrong. Uh, because those of us who study history are also destined to repeat it, but we're less surprised when it <laughs> happens. Uh, you know, so the truth is, I think that there are lessons to be drawn from each of the impeachment cases. We have to, I'd love to go through what each of those lessons are. But the big picture is that we, we have a very small sample size. We only have three cases, if you will, of impeachment or near impeachment that cause resignation. And each of them is different and that this case is turning out different. So I think that we are clinging to history, myself included, in order to find strands, in order to find themes, in order to find echoes, but ultimately this is going to play out differently than the other four, than the other three just because that's the way life works.
2: So in that case let's let's start with uh, the last impeachment process we saw in 1998 with uh, President Bill Clinton. Uh, what are some of the uh, comparisons that you find useful between that uh, episode in history and today?
3: You know, there's two really key ones. Uh, the first uh, is the way in which the case ultimately in the Senate revolved around the qu- definition of whether what Clinton did was a high crime and misdemeanor. Um, remember also the the Constitution says that the categories for impeachment are treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. And let me just parenthetically say, Americans today are really, you know, claim to be confused over what high crimes and misdemeanors means, but the founders were not unclear at all. They understood it perfectly as as someone who placed their own needs above the needs of the state, someone who did something that harmed the body politic, harm to people in general, not just someone who committed an individual harm. And that's really what saved Clinton in many ways, that the Senate essentially decided really before the trial began, we now know, that what Clinton had done was despicable, what Clinton had done was terrible. You know, Just to remind your readers, he had not only had inappropriate relations with uh, one of his employees, but more importantly, had lied about it under oath. But that was deemed ultimately by the American public as not a high crime. It was essentially a a, an, an, it was a matter of personal affair, not an affair of state. Uh, and so, even though Clinton had done something that was recognized to be against the law, there was a general understanding by the American people that you know uh, many, if not most Americans, if asked the question under oath, without any expectation, without, by surprise, uh, are you having an affair, would have said no, even though we know statistically 50% of Americans were. So uh, you know, it's really something where it was just not deemed to be a high crime. And I think that's going to be relevant today as we start thinking about what President Trump has been accused of doing, and frankly what he has in, admitted to doing. The second critical thing about the Clinton impeachment uh, is that it was essentially partisan From the beginning, much like we're seeing today, that is to say, there was not really an opportunity for people to move across the aisle, because again, the 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 case was somewhat pre-cooked, predetermined, especially when it got to the Senate. Um, Senate Majority Leader uh, um, Trent Lott, uh, Senate Minority Leader Tom Daschle from South Dakota, they agreed that this was not something that should be done. And therefore, they want to essentially preserve a sense of dignity and preserve the continuity of the Senate, much more important than convicting a president for something they didn't think was a high crime. That allowed everyone essentially to retreat to their partisan corners, if you will, because there was no need for courage. There was no need for a moment for Sanders to stand up and say, I'm going to cross the line because we know what the outcome is going to be. And I think that's, that's one of the things that we seem to be seeing today. It's rather remarkable that not a single Republican would vote to endorse an inquiry into this president, which of course had happened in the Nixon case, uh, which tells us if you're not even interested officially in asking the question, should we get more information, you're ultimately probably not going to be impressed by the information that's
2: produced. And, and what's interesting about that too is the nature, as you said, the nature of the accusations here um, with uh, Bill Clinton. This being, uh, you know, it, it, you know, lying to Congress is not a joke. We shouldn't say that that's uh, obviously um, nothing is something that should be just. Uh, uh, just thrown away. But at the same time, um, at the, the, the very deep rooted cause of that was a extramarital affair. Whereas in this case we have, as I said, nonpartisan diplomats talking about, um, the president essentially undermining their ability to advance U S interests overseas, uh, for political and personal political gain. Um, and, and now Republicans saying that this is a political sham, but again, this is the same party that, um, that, that put, um, president Clinton or Clinton up for impeachment in uh, 1998. So it seems like there's sort of a uh, disconnect there in some ways.
3: Well, you know, I mean, one of the consistent factors that we see in American history uh, across the political spectrum, Democrat, Republican, Whig, doesn't matter, is a a full embrace of hypocrisy. Um, (laughs) When it's your guy, you are very, very fundamentally on one side. And when your guy is being accused, you're on the other side. Mm. Um, See Lindsey Graham, for example, who was one of the house managers of the Clinton impeachment, That is to say, one of the prosecuting lawyers, if you will, in normal parlance in the trial um, and was absolutely apoplectic that a president of the United States who lied. And I want to go back to something that you said earlier. Clinton didn't actually lie to Congress. Mm. I think that actually might, that would be an impeachable offense. He lied in a private civil
2: Right. Right.
3: Um, So nothing to do with the state whatsoever. Um, Lindsey Graham thought that a person who would lie in a private civil suit, you know, his remaining president would essentially destroy the fabric of American democracy, Um, uh, you know. Lindsey Graham of 1998, switch parties, would be apoplectic today, but of Mm. course today he is a supporter because it's his guy that's in the dock.
2: Mm. Thank you for that correction. I appreciate that. Um, And remember, the number on the phones, if you want to get in the conversation, is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can join us on Twitter as well by uh, using the hashtag Detroit Today. Um, Jeffrey Engel, uh, last week we spoke with a couple of people who are very knowledgeable on these topics and they vehemently disagree with each other about whether the president deserves to be impeached, but they did agree on one thing and that's that these hearings are not going to amount to much Uh, especially because they don't think anyone is actually paying attention. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Do you agree uh, that, especially compared to uh, the Clinton uh, impeachment and the uh, Nixon impeachment as well, the Watergate uh, hearings, um, you know, does it seem like this is just sort of going out in the ether?
3: You know, I'll admit to you that when I first read the memorandum of President Trump's conversation with the Ukrainian president, which is claimed to be a transcript. But of course, all sides agree it's actually not a transcript. It's not verbatim. Um, When I first read that, I said to myself, oh, my goodness, this president's not going to last 24 hours because Mm. what had been done was so clearly something which previous presidents would never have tried or if they had found out would have lost their, their job immediately. But then again, I've said that seven or eight or 10 or 20 times for President Trump, that (laughs) what he has done is crossed the line. You know, I think think back, I mean, the easiest example, think back is when he was a candidate, Trump, with the Access Hollywood tape, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. I woke up, heard the news like everyone else and said to myself, "Okay." as a historian, I can tell you any other candidate that's ever had this kind of scandal ever is out of the race within 24 hours. And of course, President Trump, you know, sailed right through. So as a consequence. Uh, I I think the American people are paying attention, but they're actually quite numbed to revelations at this point um, in that the the number of things that we've seen that have transgressed what previous presidents would have been allowed to do is innumerable. And consequently, we're seeing really dramatic statements and testimony and evidence come out that is basically bouncing off the American people because they've built up a shell of immunity to uh, all of the, the different scandals of the day.
2: And we're so able to—I mean, the, the the talking points are able to resonate more now, right? I mean, at least that's my sort of uh, perception of this. That because the way that we get our news, the way we get our information, and the way that we talk about politics is so insular now um, mm-hmm. that you know, when when the party that you tend to agree with throws out talking points that are ready made for for you, it's so easy to adopt those as your own your own feeling. You're not talking about them in person with people who really disagree with you. Is that is that fair to say?
3: I think that's exactly right. In fact, we can see this statistically in that President Trump's approval rating from the very mo- first moment he came into office was about 41 to 42 percent. It hasn't budged, no matter what's gone good for him and no matter what's gone bad for him. And if you ask Americans you know, how many people are in favor or against impeachment, about 43 percent of Americans today say they are against impeachment, and his approval rating is 42 percent. So, what that tells us is, if you like the President, you think this should go away. and it may be because you 're living in a different media environment than the Democrats who are living in a different media environment than you um, so I mean go, this, this is a two way street in every, in every way shape and form for every for every person who feels that they have found the right message in Fox News, there's another person who feels they've found the right message in MSNBC. So this is not a partisan statement whatsoever. It's an indictment of the entire system and and a dangerous one at that. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, we only have uh, a little bit of time left here, but I did want to get one caller in here. Uh, Daniel in Detroit, you're on Detroit Today.
0: Yes, thank you for having me on again. Um, I've been listening to the show, and there seems to be a lot of talk about the divide between the left and the right, the steadfast positions regardless of the evidence that's in front of you. And I was wondering, your um, your guest tonight, does he have any uh, p- uh, information on, or a position, or maybe a an opinion on the uh, power that money uh, plays in this role? You know, it seems like the divide between the left and the right has gotten greater in the last 10 or 15 years, and mm. so has the spending. And then one more comment. I'm wondering if there's been any information on how much money our politicians are receiving when mm. they are in power,
2: oh, Interesting. they are in control. Yeah, Daniel, I really appreciate the call and the questions. Uh, Jeffrey Angelo, let's start uh, really quick. Again, we only have a little bit of time here, but with that first question about how money in politics might influence some of these issues.
3: I don't think there's any doubt that it does. I mean, after Citizens United, we have basically unlimited spending available to the American people to promote their political agendas without any check on whether those agendas are based in reality or not. And again, I can say that bipartisanly. Um, And so I think what we're going to see going forward is more and more and more politically focused commercials, (laughs) commercials, politically <laughs> focused, focus, paid for advertising, from those people with unlimited pockets pushing that President Trump is guilty and pushing that President Trump is innocent, which, again, will just cloud the discussion over, so, and make it more difficult for Americans to make a genuine, good-faith effort at finding out what is actually true.
2: Mm. Uh, well, Jeffrey Angle, I really appreciate you joining us here on Detroit Today. I, we had so much that we could have gotten to. We didn't even talk too much about Watergate today, but we'll have to have you back on. I'm sure this will not be an issue that's uh, going away uh, too soon here. So, I not. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Engel, director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, author of the book Impeachment in American History. Thanks again for joining us on Detroit Today.
3: Thank you. Good to talk to you.
2: All right. Coming up, we'll sit down with Monique Owens, who was just elected as East Point's new mayor. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer in for Stephen Henderson today. The city of East Point has elected its first African American mayor. Monique Owens is no stranger to community leadership, having served on East Point City Council before this new role. The, the historic mayoral vote came just two years after Owens was voted in as the city's first black council member. Monique Owens joins us now to talk about her plans in East Point and how she's feeling on the heels of the election. Monique Owens, welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Yeah,
2: And congratulations. Thank you. So, uh, you know, I wanted to start uh, for, for one thing. How does it feel to be the city's new mayor uh, and uh, when will you be sworn in?
4: Actually, it feels awesome to be able to empower people. And I got sworn in um, last Monday. This is so interesting <laughs> to me.
2: The, the the cities that swear in new mayors just a less than a week after the election. It seems like such a whirlwind. It must be must be such a whirlwind to, you know, uh, be running one day and then be assuming the seat just uh, you know a few days later.
4: Right. It can be overwhelming. So that's probably one of the things on my agenda to change in the charter. Mm, so mm-hmm. I want to give people a, a break after because I had a really tough campaign Mm -hmm. you know uh, making a difference and changing people's mindset and things like that can be really challenging so after you know you win something you want to get a break and you know uh, get ready for your new position but at the same time while you're running before you even think about getting that position your mindset should already be ready to get it so no matter what time whether it's in Two weeks or in January, you should be ready for what you run for. So. Yeah, um,
2: we we talked about this last week. The city of Flint uh, has a new mayor within just a few days of also uh, winning that election. And I mean, I'm talk about cities that are that, that face real issues that uh, you know suddenly you have to assume that leadership position, and uh, you know, that's not much time for a transition, even in uh, you know if even if it's uh, sort of a manager based as, um, uh, uh, city government. But uh, I'm I'm curious, what is your feeling about uh, the trailblazing aspect of this, being the first uh, black mayor of East Point and uh, you know what that represents and how that makes you feel personally.
4: It makes me feel really good to be able to say I was the first African-American, but anytime you do something first, you have to go through things. Mm. Everybody does. I don't care if you're the first male, first female, first African-American, first Asian, you always have to experience something different to allow other people not to experience it. But I love it. I'm able to say I can empower people. I've had tons of calls, tons of inboxes on Facebook, tons of friend requests telling me that you inspired me, Mm. you know. And that was the whole purpose of people getting out and knowing that they vote counts. And a lot of people didn't know that it counted. You know, a lot of times in these elections, people always see the same type of people get elected and they get discouraged. In this election, I was trying to let people know that don't give up, your vote does count. And at the end of the day, it showed in this election.
2: And we should also mention East Point, a a city that changed its name from East Detroit to sort of separate itself from its neighbor there uh, and has uh, a racial history as well. I'm curious what your thoughts are in that context, talking about where East Point is now in in that conversation uh, and and what that means as you uh, become the the first African-American mayor.
4: Before I even campaigned and thought about being a councilwoman and being the mayor, the, the background of East Point was very racist of what I heard of and things like that and the history and the research and things like that. So I knew my cha- what my challenge was. Mm-hmm. And so my challenge was to make other people see something different in a city where everybody thought one race or one group of people was the only thing that was good enough for a city. And so... Sometimes you have to, you know, break the barrier. And that's exactly what I did. And so in order for me to do that, I had to reach out to another group of people to say, your vote counts and you matter too in the same community. And some people in that community, they want to change as well. Even though a city might have, you know, a background full of, you know, racism, things like that. Some of those people want to get out of that hole, you know, that that was normal to them. Mm-hmm. You know, and some people getting tired of, you know, being... You know, people want to think outside the box. And I think when they see when people see something different, it makes them see that there's hope and let's go for it. And mm. so I think that's why they chose me.
2: Absolutely. So I'm curious, uh, you know, what are the issues that you ran on? What are the things facing East Point right now uh, that you thought really resonated with voters? Um, and, and And how do you plan to attack those issues?
4: Well, one thing that I ran on was the, the renters. A lot of people complain about renters and things like that. And I want to empower people with having their own homes. And I wanted the whole purpose of me running was, yeah, a lot of people run on. I want um, better, you know, streets and decrease crime. And I want renters to have their own homes, which was some of the things that I, you know, was my platform. But my main platform was getting people to get out and vote. Mm. That was the thing because when we did that whole changing of the the election and how, you know, the ranked choice voting, which East Point was the first yes. to administer it, you know, as we were going through that whole process and I learned the research of why they felt like that we needed to change the dynamics of how we vote is because they felt like African Americans didn't get out and vote. Mm-hmm. And I I fought that because I feel like African Americans do got out and vote. I just think we're somewhat uneducated on what we're voting on, you know, and why it should be important. And I tapped into what people thought wasn't um, a group of people that wasn't, you know, doing something. And I said that was going to be my focal point is to get people out to vote every year, not just, you know, locally, uh, presidential, you know, I want people to know that they voice counted. So that was my main concern in running. And then after people saw that their votes count, vote counted, a lot of more people are into politics now, mm-hmm. a lot of times you don't get into things when you feel like you're not a part of it. So now that they feel like they vote counted, now more people are coming to council meetings, now more people are saying, "Miss Owens, what commissions are open? Because they feel like they're a part of something. And that was the whole purpose of me running, is to let people know that they count, that they are powerful. And it, shown, it was shown in his election.
2: And let's talk a little bit about ranked choice voting. Now, this was not a system that was used for the mayoral election, correct? It was just for city council. So you're not a direct beneficiary of that, that new system. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about how that worked in East Point. I mean, this is sort of a local experiment of sorts uh, for the idea of ranked choice voting. Uh, for one thing, uh, if you could maybe explain a little bit about what that is and also how you think it worked out in this past election.
4: Well, it was based upon... Ranked choice voting came because the Department of Justice felt like no African American can be elected in East Point Hmm. due to its racial background. So they came up with at first, they came up with districting the city of East Point, and the way that was was very racial to me because they had a black area, and then at the top across 9 Mile, it was three areas also, and we looked at that as the white area, mm. you know, the Caucasian area. And so I felt like that was, you know, bringing, red, that was redlining right there because once you district those things, then you're going to have to put a certain amount of money in certain areas that might get less than certain areas, and mm. then it's like, okay, we back to the racial thing again. And so council said, we're not going to do that. Let's try this ranked choice voting, you know, which gives everybody a chance to get a, get ele- you know, get a vote, you know. Um, so what ranked choice voting is, is, for instance, you have a certain amount of people that run an election in an election. And then they, also, they pick their candidate from good, better, best or worst, you know. So everybody gets a vote. And so we felt like that was somewhat fair, and so anything that's fair in bringing all type of people to the table, I agree to it. Now, does it work? You know, well, two people, uh, two Caucasians won. It mm-hmm. was two Caucasians that ran and two African-Americans that ran. But people chose who they want to choose and everybody got, you know, a vote. Mm-hmm. And so that was the whole purpose of ranked choice voting. Does it work? We never know, you know, (laughs) we never know if if it works or not, you know, because voting is based upon who people want to be elected.
2: Sure. you know. And what about the process of it? I mean, do you have a sense? I mean, it meant for especially reporters selfishly that the, the, the results were coming in a little bit later than usual. So some uh, political reporters had to stay up a little bit later or into the next day because of right. that. But other than that, I mean, did it seem like a fairly seamless process? Do you think that it was uh, handled well by local uh, election officials and, and uh, relatively smooth uh, as, as a new uh, system of voting?
4: I think it was around very well. We did several classes throughout the city of East Point to let people know about ranked choice voting, about if you don't have a, a, you know, if your first one don't get picked, the second one might, you know, have a chance Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And so we educated, which was something I um, brought to the Department of Justice to make sure we educate so people can know what they're doing and why they're doing it and things like that. So we educated, we did our part as educating the community on it. The Department of Justice was out there, of course, you know, monitoring the votes. We had uh, other people were out there monitoring it as well, different groups of people to make sure people weren't intimidated at the polls. So it was a it was a huge election where people want to make sure everybody vote counted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so at the end of the day, when people go to the polls and they close, you know, and go between that desk and, you know, things like that, you never know who they're really going to choose. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you just hope. That they choose the best person for the job. I'm sure. And, you know, they did.
2: Uh, You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer. I'm in for Stephen Henderson today. Uh, I'm speaking with Monique Owens, the mayor-elect of East Point, former Detroit Police Department officer and member of East Point City Council. Uh, And we are talking about this past election and a number of sort of uh, uh, glass-shattering elections here in Metro Detroit for mayoral contestants and what that means. And I'm curious if you want to get involved in the conversation to talk about do you think that more women, do you think more people of color, do you think that the people running for these kinds of offices should be coming from more uh diverse backgrounds from uh you know should more what would it mean if more women won seats as mayor or on city council in local governments here in Metro Detroit is that something that you've considered are you someone that has thought about your gender, your race or any other part of your identity that would bring something to the table as a local official and thought about maybe I should run or what that would mean. If if this is uh, something you want to get in on, you can call 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. And uh, Monique Owens, I want to ask you about um, what you would say to other people considering getting into local politics. Um, obviously, this is a choice that you made to mm-hmm. uh, to add your voice and, your, and, and get that kind of power locally. Um, a lot of people might not even Consider it, right? That right. that a lot of people think. Well, I've got my life, I've got my job, I've got my family, and uh, you know, I, I, I vote, and the people make decisions for me. Uh, what would you say to people who have sort of an inkling? Maybe maybe my voice is valuable in uh, mm. local government.
4: You said something huge. You said some people are okay with saying, "I want people to tell me what to do." Mm. That that's a problem for me when um, people don't even pay attention to the people who's telling them and making decisions for them. And then when something goes bad, then people waking up, Mm. you know, just for instance. um, It's a it's a certain it's just certain people that control certain things like judges and things like that. And people want to complain about, well, I can't stand this judge. He's always taking people to jail and things like that. But they don't know that they have the power to elect that judge. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we sit back and let people control our lives and don't take control ourselves. And so that's what. Part of being an elected official is, is taking control of the things, you know, in your community and taking that power and doing it yourself. And I want people to be out there to, you know, step up and do that. Now, I have a family and things like that and a job, so it can get overwhelming at times. But then I've seen a lot of things that I want to change. And sometimes if you want change, you have to get up. You have to stop letting people control what's going on and saying, you know what? I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to do nothing about it. I'm going to sit back, go on Facebook and complain and change my, my face on Facebook and my name and just go back and complain. You know how right, some right. people do? You know, the trolls. We call them trolls. The yes. trolls. Yeah, I had a couple of trolls following me right now. But, you know, but that's not doing anything. You know, when people say I don't vote, it's like, OK, you pay taxes, don't you? You live, don't you? So if you're doing all those things, you are part of the process. You're just not involved in it. Mm -hmm. It's a difference. So you letting people control your money, how you live, how you eat, you know, all these things, and you have no say, that's a problem for me. And so I saw how it worked. I didn't grow up in politics. I have nobody in my family that's politics. I have no friends Mm -hmm. that are politicians. But when I seen how... The, the process went, I seen how the laws were against certain groups of people and certain things. I said, I got to stand up and do something about it. Mm. And hopefully people who's listening out there would be more involved in their community. If they see something wrong, do something about it and do not be a troll. Mm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there
2: you go. Uh, really quick. I want to, you know, we're talking hyper local right now, but I want to actually broaden it out to the national level. Um, the power of the, uh, the African American vote in 2016 was something that people talked about a whole lot. And, uh, you know, who showed up, who didn't show up. I'm curious, looking forward to 2020, what do you think, from your perspective, is, um, you know, what what role are uh, is, is the black vote going to play in this next election in your mind?
4: Oh, it's, it's going to be huge. It showed in this election with, you know, my campaign. And like I said, I tapped into a group of people that felt that people felt like that they don't go out and vote locally. We go out and vote for the presidential, but we don't understand that local you know, voting is just as important because that's where you live. Possibly
2: even more important. More important.
4: Say. And a lot of people don't even a lot of people didn't know what I did as a councilwoman. Some people don't know what a mayor does, the Senate, the congressman, but everybody know what the president do mm-hmm. and doesn't know that it starts locally and goes all the way up to the United States. And all the information locally goes all the way up. To, so they can help us, you know, make the choices that we make locally in the laws and things like that. So it starts with us. But a lot of people don't know that, especially the African-American community. And so in this election, tapping into that group of people and letting them know what I do, how it matters, how your vote matters and things like that has changed the dynamics and let people know that are outside the African-American group that our vote does count.
0: Mm.
2: Real quick, you don't have to answer it, but just going to throw it out there. Is there a candidate that you're especially interested in so far on the national level right now? No, (laughs) (laughs) it's waiting and seeing, right? No, waiting and seeing. It's early. Yeah, it's early. So
4: (laughs) I just want to see. I want people want to say Republican, Democrat. I want the vote for somebody who's going to do the right job, Mm. and that's important to me. You know, and so not only is that important to me, uh, what else is important to me is to let African Americans know that your vote does count. Get out and vote. Everybody votes count, but I'm just tapping into a group of people that don't think it does because they're so used to seeing the norm Mm -hmm. you know when the norm is always saying you know the history going all the way back is always seeing uh caucasian Mm -hmm. males in these seats and you know and etc etc and and that's fine too don't get me wrong but sometimes in order to tap into different people's lifestyles and experiences you have to have different people at the table Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes when people see that it makes people get out and vote more it makes people want to be involved more and as a you know as a community as the united states as people as a human race we should want everybody at the table regardless mm-hmm. and so i think it makes a change it makes a difference
2: monique owens uh, the mayor elect of east point former detroit police department officer and member of east point city council thank you so much for joining thank us thank you for here having me today. coming up we're going to talk to another new mayor here in metro detroit who broke some boundaries we'll talk with livonia's new mayor don't go anywhere You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer in for Stephen Henderson. We're talking about local elections that happened last month here in Metro Detroit. They had significant outcomes in several cities. One of those cities is Livonia, which elected its first female mayor. Maureen Miller Brosnan narrowly defeated her opponent, and she's set to take office in January. Like all communities, Livonia has its own unique set of challenges. Today, we will talk with Maureen Miller Brosnan about her historic election, the obstacles facing Livonia, and her vision as newly elected mayor. Maureen Miller Brosnan, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Thanks, Jake. Glad to be here.
2: So we just uh, talked a lot with uh, Monique Owens, uh, the new mayor in East Point, about what motivated her to run for mayor. So I want to get your idea. You know, what was it about that uh, position that you decided this is what I need to do? Yeah.
1: You know, it's one of those right time, right place decisions. I would served for 17 years on the city council, uh, born and raised in Livonia. It's always been my passion to be able to lead the community as we make some change. And um, this seemed to be the time when Livonia was really asking for that kind of change. Um, You know, We started this campaign as a real grassroots effort. Um, We started by asking people, do you want um, Maureen Brosnan to be your mayor? And we went out with a petition drive, uh, which the city hadn't seen in a very long time. Over 900 people signed on board and said, we want to be part of transforming Livonia. So we thought, this is the right time to begin talking about where we take Livonia next. And quickly, people rallied around the idea that what we really were looking at is a community that was fantastic where it was, but unless we were willing to push harder, um, we weren't going to be moving forward. Mm. So we wanted to create a city that our children wanted to come home to. And that was a concept that I'm deeply invested in. Um, like I say, born and raised in Livonia. My parents still live in Livonia. I have three children that I've been raising in Livonia. So it seemed like this was all exactly the right message that the community was looking for.
2: And talk a little bit about Livonia as a community. I mean, it's uh it's in Western Wayne County and yeah. it, it's, you know, it's, it's a, Big city. It's almost. Correct me if I'm wrong. Almost a hundred thousand people. Yeah. Uh, I was. I heard that number this morning, and I was like, "Are you really? is yeah. that that yeah. big?" Uh, and uh, also economically diverse in, in many ways. Uh, how what should people think of when they think of yeah. Livonia?
1: So biggest little small town you'll ever find (laughs) is how I define Livonia. Um, We are. We're the ninth largest city in Michigan. Uh, We have a $145 million budget that we operate within Mm -hmm. 600 employees um, that manage the city on a day-to-day basis. The mayor's job is a strong mayor, strong council, form of government. There is day-to-day operations. Um, And in terms of the city itself, though, what's most fantastic about it is this balance that we have between a really strong... um, economy, because we have a great business community in Livonia, supported by a really strong uh, neighborhoods in Livonia, great school system, um, our position within the community optimally located with the intersection of two major expressways, um, uh, just a real hard charging uh, chamber of commerce, and a lot of really good things going for us in terms of our ability to attract um, not only homeowners, but businesses to our community.
2: So let's talk about the um, uh, the, the necessary glass shattering question here. Uh, how does it feel to be the first woman ever to hold this position in Livonia?
1: You know, in one breath, it's ultimately exciting uh, to be the first to do anything. But in another breath, we're a city that's going to be 70 years old next year. Mm-hmm. And it took us 70 years to get our first female mayor. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, That doesn't feel so good. So my hope is that becoming the first mayor 70 years into the growth of a city is really not just a matter of putting a trail in place, but putting a concrete road in place so that nobody ever has to look back at this again and say, this is a hard thing to do.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm speaking with Maureen Miller-Brosnan, mayor-elect of Livonia, will be Livonia's first female mayor. If you want to get in on the conversation, what questions? Do you have for Maureen Miller Brosnan, who will be the first woman to serve as mayor in Livonia? We especially want to hear from you if you're from Livonia. We'd also really love to hear from you if you're a woman who has run for office or has considered running for office or even served in or hoped to serve in any position of power in the community, in the workplace, or elsewhere. What obstacles have you faced or what obstacles do you fear facing? Um, and, and we really want to hear from you in that context. So the number is 313 577 1019 Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter or leave us a comment or a question on Facebook. Uh, And Maureen Miller-Brosnan, I want to ask you, um, sort of in the context of statewide and national gains uh, for women women running for and actually winning office, I'm curious, uh, do you see this as sort of a continuation of the so-called pink wave of the 2018 midterms? Do you see that continuing and you're being in any way part of that?
1: You know, I do. I I think that there is a lot of attention um, being placed on the role of women in elected office, and I do see that that is continuing. You know, in Livonia, for example, our highest-ranking elected officials, all of those seats are now held by women. Hmm. Um, The city clerk, the city treasurer, the mayor, and the council president are all— Seats that females now occupy in Livonia, we've never had that happen before, um, and and quite honestly, I think it's a it's going to be a welcome change. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to be able to really um, get some amazing things done.
2: Um, and and what would you say to other people, especially women who are considering running for local yeah. office?
1: Be ready. Um, I think you have to make sure that you're ready to take advantage of opportunities. And I think women in particular are especially well-placed to do that. We find ourselves naturally as problem solvers. Um, I think the problem, though, for us is that sometimes we wait too long to take advantage of opportunities. We want to be the most ready that we can possibly be. And I would contend that women are ready long before they realize Mm -hmm. that they really and truly are.
2: Very interesting. And, um, again, the number on the lines is 313-577-1019. I would like to go to John on the east side. John, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: So I, I uh, come from the far east side, but I have a sister that uh, raised her family in uh, Livonia. Hmm. And one of the things that uh, you just can't avoid noticing is the overwhelming whiteness of Livonia. So do you have some plans to have some inclusiveness uh, to other uh other
2: colors. John, great question. Thank you so much for the call. Uh, Maureen Miller-Brosnan, what would you say?
1: Thanks, John. That is a great question, and it was one of the issues that rose during the course of the campaign, and um, I would contend that Livonia is a a very accepting community. I think part of what we need to do is really be an arms-wide open community, and I think as a mayor, as a leader of a community like Livonia, um, you have an opportunity to appoint a number of people to boards and commissions that help in the decision-making and the direction driving of a community. And I think that those boards and commission appointments um, are critical in making sure that we truly reflect uh, the community that we serve. And um, it's going to be my job as mayor to make sure that those boards and commissions are really reflective of the diversity that does exist in Livonia. You know, we knocked um, over th- 47,000 doors, uh, 47,572 doors to be exact, <laughs> who's, uh, counting, right? <laughs> who's counting, Who's uh, counting? from April until the election in November. And when you knock that many doors and talk to that many residents, you really do begin to see the diversity that exists in Livonia. So Making sure that we represent that diversity on our boards and commissions is going to be important.
2: Mm. Uh, And on that point, I mean, in Metro Detroit and Michigan, generally speaking, we are seeing a lot of communities becoming more diverse. We're also seeing a lot of communities sort of staying uh, in sort of the uh, segregated place that we've been in for decades now. Uh, Kind of going uh, more broadly, I'm curious, uh, what are some of the issues and challenges facing Livonia that you think illustrate bigger themes and challenges facing Michigan and other communities? Communities in 2019. Yeah.
1: So Livonia residents were really clear. You know, when you're knocking on 47,000 doors and you knock with the question, what is it that you want your mayor to pay attention to? You get amazing data. So we, lo- we had nine months worth of data collection, and residents told us three things. Number one, make sure you keep our city safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're currently short 30 police officers. We started the campaign out five firefighters short, ended up nine firefighters short. So the problem is growing and continuing. Mm-hmm. So finding a way to make sure that we attract and retain uh, quality uh, police officers and firefighters is my number one priority. The second thing that Livonia voters said is that make sure you keep our school system strong. And while the the city council and the mayor don't directly impact day-to-day operations of the school system. There's a lot of interaction between the two. So the area where we find that we can most um, make sure that we make a difference is in a really strong workforce development program. And the voter voters said that that was something they ultimately wanted their city leadership, their mayor, to lead on. And then the third thing they said was fix the roads. Mm. Um, That's one so- <laughs> we've heard before, yes. <laughs> not a not a new drumbeat. No. Um, but nonetheless, um, one that I am really going to have to be uh looking forward to championing and making sure that we get our fair share of road dollars. So Livonia voters set their agenda. Um, I didn't set this agenda. This is one set by them.
2: Hmm. Well, Maureen Miller-Brosnan, mayor-elect of Livonia, will be the first woman to serve in that role. Thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today.
1: Thanks for having me, Jake.
2: And uh, tune in tomorrow. We're going to have live coverage of the impeachment hearings from NPR starting at 9 a.m. And so that means we will not be on the air for Detroit today, but we will be bringing you those impeachment hearings from NPR again starting at 9 a.m. We will be definitely coming back to this the next time we are live here to get your reactions to what's happening on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., This is WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Detroit Today is produced by me, Jake Neer, and Anna-Marie Seisling. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our associate producer is Claire Brennan. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. You can... Again, tune in tomorrow for those that coverage of the impeachment hearings from Washington on NPR starting again at nine AM. This is Detroit Today. I'm Jake Near, in for Steven Henderson. Thank you so much for listening.